It's interesting when you think about the fact that for most of us, work takes up the core of our life. So think about the implication of that. It takes up for most of you the core of your week, but it also carves out the core of your life. When you shave off the parts of your life, um, childhood, and then toward the end of life, work occupies that very center space. So we've spent the last three weeks taking a step back from kind of the daily grind and reflecting on the meaning of work in light of the Christian perspective. And we've seen that work gives meaning to life because it is the way we make ourselves useful to others and therefore useful to God. Now that's a lot of territory. We've covered that in the first several weeks. In this final lecture, I'm going to do two things. First, I'm going to show how the Christian vision of work can help you to find what Amy Sherman, she's a scholar in Charlottesville, what she calls your vocational sweet spot. And second, I'll show how your daily work shapes your soul. So I'm going to come at the same issue from two angles, how your soul can shape your choice of work and then how your work can shape your soul in return. So starting with the first one, finding your vocational sweet spot. Throughout history, people have typically not had much choice when it comes to the kind of work they do. Their work is simply imposed upon them by circumstances beyond their control. So for most of history and in much of the world today, your work is determined by one of two things. Either the economic niche of your family or a combination of financial necessity in the job market. Those two issues, the economic niche of your family in much of the world or this combination of financial necessity and the job market, these two issues remove choice from most people for most of history. But we live in this moment, most of us in this room, we live in this place in this moment where we get to choose what we do. Now, the, the, real, the irony is that because for most people, for most of the world, choice is not a part of work, The ironic issue is that Christianity hasn't said much about choosing work because it typically hasn't had to face that issue. So the resources of Christian tradition when it comes to choosing work are fairly thin um, because that's just not normally a part of the equation. So what I'm going to do tonight is draw upon the, the, the deep tradition of what the church has said about work in different settings and make some lines, some trajectories that I think can help us in a culture of choice. Whether you're choosing a job for the first time or you're at a place in your career where you might be choosing another job. Now, to do this, I think it's important to start with the purpose of work. And according to the Christian tradition, the purpose of work is to serve God by serving others through the responsible use of your talents and abilities. Now notice how this gives us some very helpful criteria for choosing work. For instance, this eliminates some jobs right away. Working at an adult bookstore or opening a brothel 
or becoming a mercenary soldier. And you can easily see how some of, how this purpose of work from the Christian perspective automatically X's out some jobs. But for most of you, for most of us, that's not the challenge. The clearly immoral, unjust jobs. For most of us, there's not a clear dichotomy between good and bad jobs when we're choosing in the job market. For most of us, the issue when it comes to choosing a good job is a matter of degrees. So if you have the opportunity to choose your career, you need to choose a job that gives you the best opportunity Considering all of the complicated circumstances, what job gives you the best opportunity to employ your abilities for the common good? And like I said, very often this is a matter of degrees. Now, for example, imagine a company that uses the abilities of its employees, the creative abilities of its employees, to develop innovations in healthcare or environmental stewardship. Now compare this company to a company that produces needless things and new consumer waste. I'm thinking of the company that directs the creative energies of its employees, for example, to develop cosmetic changes in packaging or the creation of new colors of lipstick. I think you could begin to stretch out on a continuum a series of degrees. Obviously, there are far more complicated issues at play than the ones I've just identified. What I'm saying is that working for these latter type of companies isn't necessarily morally wrong, but you should ask yourself, from the Christian perspective, in a world that is as broken and needy as ours is, is it wise to give 50 years of your working life toward creating new flavors of dog food or $1,500 sterling silver canisters for tennis balls, or gold-plated staples. Some things in our economy are just trivial, and if you can, you should avoid them. If you have a choice of jobs, unlike the bottom billion of the world's poor, what I'm saying is choose wisely, and choose based on criteria that match up with principles. And if you're approaching this as a Christian, with Christian principles. So what is a wise career choice? The novelist and theologian Frederick Beekner has helpfully said that the wise place to work is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meets. The wise place for you to work is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. So what I'm saying is, to the greatest extent possible in your circumstances, choose to work at the place where your gifts and passions intersect with God's priorities and the world's needs. And now, there's this Venn diagram on the front of your note sheet uh, that I've stolen, again, from Amy Sherman. Your vocational sweet spot, it, it, fill, in the, fill in the three circles. So the top circle, God's priorities. The bottom left circle, you can write in there, my passions and gifts. And the bottom right circle, the world's needs. You know, a Venn diagram, these overlap, and it's where they all three overlap. 
that Amy Sherman helpfully calls a vocational sweet spot. Now, when you're playing tennis, you don't have to hit it from the sweet spot every time, right? I'm not saying this is the only job you get. I'm saying this is the sweet spot. So we're going to look at these three issues. First of all, discovering your gifts and passions, the bottom left-hand side of the circle. To discover your own vocational sweet spot, you need to discover your gifts and passions. And and here's the crazy thing. I, I said this a couple of weeks ago. We have to make career choices long before we even know who we are in this world. And, and so that makes, that makes it very complicated. And, and discovering who you are and discovering your strengths and your abilities and your, your talents, this, this is typically a difficult and painful and protracted process that goes on long after you have to decide what you're going to do. But the fact of the matter is, none of us are born with job descriptions, you know, taped on our backs. Our vocational aptitudes have to be discovered by process. And the process is a process of coming to know yourself. And this road of self-knowledge, it's a long one, and we, don't, we often don't possess a clear idea of exactly who we are until many years have gone by. Now, here are some important ways to discover your gifts, I would suggest. Reflect upon your past experience. What have I done? And what have I done well? Uh, Despite the kind of contemporary American egalitarian culture, not everyone is good at everything. So what have you literally done well? Uh, um, A friend of mine would say, this is kind of like cooking spaghetti. Throw it on the wall. If it sticks, then, then you know you can do it. You know, Go for it. Try it. What kind of skills, when you've done something well, what skills did you make use of? What kind of knowledge did you acquire in your past experiences? What kind of objects did you work with? You know, when you did something well, were you working with numbers? Were you working with wood? Were you working with people? What kind of objects were at hand? Reflect upon your past experiences is a is very helpful in discovering your gifts and passions. Number two, remain open to future experience. To be human is to become. As you move through your work life, you'll inevitably learn something about yourself. And the good news is, for those of us who have the opportunity to choose a career, we live in a culture where you can change your careers. And so very often you're into a career and you discover something new a latent gift, a potential you had that you didn't even know you had 10 years ago. Career choices are rarely irrevocable in our society. Most people nowadays, they say, change careers four or five times over the course of a lifetime. Number three, I would say aptitude testing is is very helpful. This is a type of testing that, this is not intelligence testing or interest testing. There's a, there is a type of testing that is developed in our culture called aptitude testing. I've put on here, I think, on there a website of one company that I know of that does this, that some in this room have gone through. Number four, beware of self-deception. This is a huge hurdle to discovering our gifts. 
we live in this culture where everybody wants to be good at everything. But it's clear that we don't have all the same gifts. I mean, some people in this room have the gift of beauty and other people don't. (laughs) Or you could just say playing basketball or whatever. The sin of greed and pride and envy and fear, these things so easily get in our lives. And the trick is that greed and pride and envy and fear easily cloud our vision of what our abilities are. And because all of us have this incredible capacity to deceive ourselves, it is really important to seek the advice of others, but not just any other, because a lot of us have surrounded ourselves by clubs of mediocrity, people who just agree with us for the sake of agreement. We need to seek advice from people who are known for mature and balanced judgment because of this capacity for self-deception. Number five, recognize your concerns. What concerns do you carry? What bothers you about the world? See, it's not just about your gifts. It's also about your passions. What bothers you? The traditional Christian idea is that God is sovereign, that he has power over individuals, and that in his providence you're born when you are, where you are, and he could have changed that. He could have shaped you by all sorts of experiences or a personality that gives you a different set of concerns. Number, number six, recognize your lively interest. What kind of interest have, have, has, have driven you to acquire skills? What kind of interest has compelled you to spend your discretionary money in voluntary ways? And as you reflect on these things, it helps, us, it helps you to get a sense of your gifts and your passions. Now, another part of the Venn diagram uh, there on the right is the, the world's needs. Going back to the line by Frederick Beekner, the wisest place to work is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. The interesting thing about identifying the needs of the world is that I think there are two major hurdles we face when we try to look out at the world and look at needs and pick a job that fits in that category. The first major hurdle, the world in which we live makes it difficult to connect our job to the actual need of the world. I'm thinking specifically in terms of the development of wage labor. You know that in much of the world and for much of time, labor wasn't about wages. It was about the very thing I'm saying work is for, contributing to the good of the community or taking care of yourself, your family. But we, when, by the development of wage labor, we, we get these intermediary steps between what we're doing and what needs what we're doing is actually meeting. The development of wage labor has led to the commodification of work, the buying and selling of time and skills and energy. 
And one of the knock-on effects is that it's very difficult to see something that our foremothers and our forefathers saw very clearly. Think about how their experience of work was so directly related to their own livelihood or the well-being of the local communal community. But for us, work has become highly specialized and fragmented. So for many of us, our work, it's like it's a tiny cog in the vast and largely unintelligible global machine. And that makes it hard for us to think clearly about what our work is ultimately for. A thousand years ago, you didn't have to ask what your work is for. It makes it hard for us to think clearly about whether does our work actually promote the good of others. Now, we can't change this. This is the system we're in. All I'm saying is that this is a hurdle to thinking clearly about the needs of the world. The second hurdle to identifying the world's needs is that it's easy to confuse market demand and legitimate needs. Sometimes they're the same and sometimes they're not. Pope John XXIII wrote, in the economically developed countries, talking about countries like America, it frequently happens that great or sometimes very great remuneration is had for the performance of some task of lesser doubtful utility. French Catholic philosopher Yves Simone reminds us that at the Christian view of humanity, there is this resistance to the notion that any and every desire is an expression of genuine need. This is the Christian view of humanity, that there are desires that are not legitimate needs. For example, the pornography industry. No one will deny that there is a lucrative demand for slick, for slick videos of naked bodies. You can make a lot of perfectly legal money if you choose to meet this demand. But existing demand is not necessarily a reliable guide to legitimate need. And it's not just the jobs that are so clearly morally bankrupt. This is Pope John XXIII's insight. Many of the jobs in our economy are geared to the production and sell of things that are cheap and frivolous, environmentally hazardous, hazardous or socially unsound. For example, suppose you've decided on the career of being of, of medicine. You have a compassion for sick, For the sick, you have the necessary intellectual abilities, you have the appropriate aptitudes, and you're currently acquiring the diagnostic skills and knowledge necessary for this career. But at some point in your training, you're going to have to decide where in the field of medicine you fit in. A highly paid plastic surgeon with regular hours in an urban area with a high doctor-to-patient ratio in all the amenities of high culture? Or a family practitioner in an economically depressed rural area where the cost of malpractice insurance makes your standard of living far below what the 
plastic surgeon is getting. The patient ratio is low. This is where basic medical services are most needed. You see how the Christian drive is, is causing you to evaluate not only your gifts and abilities, and there's a lot more to any given career choice than the, the things I'm identifying, obviously. But I'm trying to force the issue and say demand doesn't always determine need the way I'm looking at it in this Venn diagram. I can make a similar illustration of the law profession. You know, there are lawyers in our town that got their degrees at the right institutions that opened the doors for them to serve in the lawyer mills in major cities in the U.S. where they can make a lot more money. Or they can come here and make a much lower wage And some of them have done it because of this very issue. Because the demand did not mean for them the need. In the world we live in, much of the work in our culture is, to be frank, inappropriate and unnecessary. What I mean by inappropriate is that it does not further others' happiness and health. True happiness. And what I mean by unnecessary is that it serves only the tiny aim of self-advancement. So last week when I said all legitimate work is equal, it was with all of this that I didn't go into. My point is that there are plenty of people willing to take up appealing positions. But the Christian view of work orients us toward the, the direction of the greatest human need. Where your gifts and your abilities and the needs of the world and the priorities of God meet. The U.S. Catholic bishops in their pastoral letter on the U.S. economy in 1986 wrote, Meeting fundamental human needs must come before the fulfillment of desires for luxury consumer goods. For profits not conducive to the common good and for unnecessary military hardware. Now, I know these are hard words. They suggest that the wisest career choice may involve a degree of sacrifice and self-denial. Our culture idolizes comfort and happiness and safety, but Christians must form a counterculture for the common good. And this will involve making choices to be brave rather than comfortable and safe. Now, with these two hurdles identified, it still remains that, practically speaking, finding your vocational sweet spot means that you will ask, how well does the job that you're considering link up with the needs of the world and the priorities of God? Remember, the purpose of our work is to serve God's priorities in this world. How? By using our talents and abilities to serve others. Now, three observations. First, as a general rule, you should choose a job for which you're qualified. I think this is the question Noel and Darcy were asking last week. Of course there are exceptions. Always in history there have been these moments where people had no qualification for a job and then they rose up and did quite the heroic work. I would just say, don't assume you're the exception. 
a, a second observation. Finding your vocational sweet spot is usually a journey. I mean, there are these people who know from... I read a story this week, a girl at 12 years old looking at an architectural magazine knew in that moment that's what she was going to do. Josh is looking at Sarah, and he's mad at her because that's what she's lived, and she doesn't know his pain. Finding your vocational sweet spot is usually a journey that takes time, and the process looks different for different people. I want to commend something to you. It's called the examine, E-X-A-M-E-N. The examine, developed by St. Ignatius. It's the best tool I know for acquiring vocational knowledge, for learning who you are and what you were made to do. I wish I'd put notes in your note sheet on this, but there's basically a few steps. You can write these down. One, light a candle and just do it. And um, take a deep breath and relax. Do this at the end of the day. You, you light a candle from the Christian perspective, recognizing that Christ is the light of the world and using it to remind yourself you're in the presence of Christ. You take a deep breath, you let it out slow, and then you ask yourself this question. Well, rather, you, you prayerfully ask God to bring to your mind the moment today for which you are most grateful. If you could relive one moment, which one would it be? When, when were you most able to give and receive love? You ask God to bring that to your mind. And then once it's there in your mind, you ask yourself, what was said and done in that moment that made it so special for you? And then you breathe in the gratitude you felt. And you receive life again from that moment as you remember it. Then the next thing you do is you ask God to bring to your mind, your heart, the moment today for which you are least grateful. When were you least able to be yourself? When were you least able to give and to receive love? And then you ask yourself, what was said or done in that moment that made it so difficult? Now, don't try to fix it. You know, don't go into that kind of thing where you start telling them off, you know, in your mind and sorting it out. Now, that's not what you're trying to do. You're trying to learn yourself right now. You're not trying to work through the situation. And so instead of trying to change it or fix it in your imagination, what you do is you take a deep breath and you let God's love fill you, fill you just as you are. And then the next thing you do is you give thanks for whatever you've experienced. If possible, share as much of this as you wish with your friends or your family. Janelle and I, we practice something like this frequently at dinner with our five young children. The reason we do this is because this exercise, it's hundreds of years old. When it's practiced regularly over time, it gives a person a deep sense of who they are. Vocational knowledge, I believe, is the most difficult knowledge to acquire for most people. What was I made for? What am I cut out for? And what 
the way you do the exam is you pick a period of time, say 40 days, and you practice it every night, as many nights in a week as you can, with your spouse or with friends. You ask these questions, you share them. It doesn't have to go long. It can be two or three minutes each. What today were you most thankful for? And then as time goes by, you develop a deep trust in yourself. And that's the real challenge with making a vocational choice, is trusting yourself. That this is what I'm for. This is what I was made for. So I commend this to you, this process of finding your vocational sweet spot by the journey inward. See, our culture is all about the journey outward, but self-knowledge requires the journey inward. Number three, a third observation. Finding your vocational sweet spot is not an all-or-nothing situation. Life rarely works out that way. When it comes to your vocational sweet spot, you should seek it, like I said earlier, to the greatest extent possible. But at the end of the day, we do not live in a world of unlimited choices and ultimate freedom. And there are many here in our community that are not able to work in their vocational sweet spot. That's just not realistic because there's more to life than work. There are more variables at play. For example, you may take a job because it allows you to, depend, to care for your aging parents. Some people move to a town and take the job available in order to fulfill the vocation of being a child. Or another situation. There are some people who are aiming at a job that requires much training and preparation. So I finished the school portion of the preparation for my job when I was like 36. I did a bachelor's degree and a master's degree, started one doctorate, and then did another doctorate. Now, all along, I, I, I was headed toward being a pastor, but I was not in my vocational sweet spot. I mean, you can think about a lot of jobs that require a lot of preparation along the way. Or maybe your emotional and physical health have been compromised. And for a season, the job that fits, the job you need, is not your vocational sweet spot. Or maybe the job that fits you is just not available in the current economy. See, we don't have a right to getting a job right in the center of this diagram, but I'm saying that many of us will face this moment in our life where we have to choose. I'm trying to push back against all the talk I'm doing about how to make the choice to say that that's not the only way to have satisfaction. In fact, satisfaction isn't even the first reason to choose a job. We, I talked about that a few weeks ago. Now, I'm going to shift gears. I've been talking about how the Christian vision of work shapes the whole issue of choice for your career or a new career. Now I want to reverse the thing and instead of talking about how your faith can shape your job, I'm going to talk about how your job functions with regard to your soul. And I'll just be very quick here. There's just a little bit. Our work life and our family life are the primary context in which we become who we become. 
Soren Kierkegaard, I think I've quoted him in this setting, has this great line, and now by the grace of God I will become myself. To be human is to become. We're not born fixed. We change. And the two primary contexts in which we become who we are is the close familial relationships we're involved with and work. You will develop into a person that God wants you to be or the person that God does not want you to be through family and work. Now this series is about work, so when it comes to work, choice is the chisel that shapes the self. I mean, you see what I'm trying to say? I'm trying to create this image, right? You can see the sculptor walking up to the tree, the shapeless trunk, and seeing in it what it can be. And then what does he do? He reaches for a chisel. And that chisel is what shapes that lump into what it can be. The chisel that shapes your soul at work are the choices you make on a daily basis at work. Think about this. When it comes to work, there's an interesting irony. Too often we forget that one byproduct of our work is the person we are becoming on the job. We are the primary product of our work. And it's the choices you make that chisel your soul into the shape it's becoming. How well do you choose to do the work at hand? How well do you choose to develop and use the talents God has given you? What is the quantity and the quality of the work that you turn out every day? All of the choices that go into that, those choices are shaping your soul far more than some religious confession. Are you making shoddy, cheap, or ugly products? Are you defiling creation by using natural resources to no good end? How do we choose to relate to others on the job? Have you chosen to see the people you, that you work with, your workmates, your bosses? Have you chosen to see them as people you serve or that people are in the way of your agenda? You see, if you, if, if you look at it wrong, then people become an interruption. Maybe for some of us, we need to say that the interruption, that's the first task at hand. Not always. How do you choose to relate to others on your job? What about your consumer, your customers, your, those who consume the products you create? What do you see them as? What do you choose to see them as? Are you artificially creating needs and wants in other people through your job? Are you seeing them in that way? You think about school teachers, how easy it is for a school teacher in the workroom to blackball children... And to begin begin to see children as the barrier to the job. 
What I'm saying is the choice to see your students that way if you're a teacher is the chisel that's shaping your soul. Are you turning people into anxious, ungrateful, hapless, resentful customers through your job? You see, one of the reasons that human work is so important is because it is the concrete reality in which we find our place in this world and we become ourselves. The question is, which self are you becoming through the choices you make at work? The way you exercise power is shaping you. The power you have over those who work for you, over your workmates, and over your bosses. We can so easily slip into modes of behavior that are using power in manipulative ways, and that is the chisel that is shaping your soul. Does does your use of power reflect self-interestedness, self-centeredness, and individualism? Or does it reflect a commitment to servanthood? If you're not using power to serve, power is corrupting you. Your job can be the location of your growth in love and kindness and faithfulness and patience and humility and self-control. And that doesn't require your job to change. It requires you to approach your job differently. Now, the reason this is possible is because when you leave your house in the morning and you head off to work, you can be assured that God's desire is to be with you in your daily work no less than His desire is to be with you in your worship. 